morning again. I'm going to ask Matt to not um, put me on to preach after Mike does the children's sermons. It's like a sermon in itself. Well, already encouraged. All right, so sermon number two. Uh, we're in Mark 12, so we're uh, continuing to plow through Mark. <clears throat> we're going to be talking about love today. I read a story uh, recently this week <clears throat> about a uh, little girl who went over to a a friend's house to eat dinner with her family, and her friend's mother asked her if she um, liked broccoli, and she little girl said, oh, yes, ma'am, I, I love broccoli. And uh, when the food was passed around, she politely let the food pass by. And uh, the mother inquired, I, th- I thought you loved broccoli. And she said, oh, yes, I do love broccoli. Just not enough to eat it. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about Love for God and love for our neighbor today. But it's not like uh, this girl's love for broccoli. It's a love for God that leaves us wanting to dive in and feast upon God and hopefully sacrifice, leave here wanting to sacrifice for the good of our neighbor. So let's read, uh, read Mark 12, verse 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as yourself, as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together once more. (coughs) Excuse me. God, we desperately need to hear of this great call to love you and love our neighbor. But we most importantly need to hear of how you first loved us in the gospel. We pray, Lord, you would encourage us. May the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. And may we receive your word with great receptivity. And may it come with great power through the Holy Spirit. Unto your glory, O Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Many of you know the man Chuck Colson, who is known for going to prison during the Watergate scandal uh, with Nixon. And um, he became a Christian in college, um, in college, in prison. He ended up having a huge ministry and writing significant uh, books. One of them was called Loving God. In that book uh, called Loving God, he, um, he mentions going through a very spiritually dry time in his life. And uh, he's wrestling with this command in the, in, in the text we, we have today. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And he began wondering, what does it really mean 
I mean, practically, what does it mean to really love God like that? How do we do it? So he, he went to some of his spiritual mentors uh, that are ahead of him and said, how do you really love God? He says in the book that one of them responded, well, by, by loving God. And uh, then he went on to clarify, and, and you do this with all your heart. Okay, well, he asked another, he said, and another responded, by maintaining a worshipful heart and offering self as an acceptable sacrifice. He, he, he asked for some specifics, and he went on to speak of his devotional life, his prayer life, and halfway through, the, the man stopped. He said, well, you know, I'll get back to you. Um, some, he said, spoke of church attendance and tithing. Some, he said, just looked at him with suspicion, um, wondering if he's asking a trick question. <laughs> His conclusion was this, Christians don't really know what this greatest commandment really means. How do we love God with all of our heart and our neighbors ourselves? So I wonder if we would do any better. I wonder if we, um, if I just kind of pointed to somebody randomly and said, why don't you stand up and answer the question, how do you love God? If we'd do any better. I'm not going to do that if you're sweating or looking for the door. But I wonder what you would say. How do you love God and your neighbor? A scribe here was an authority on God's law and scripture. He knew all the commands God has given in the Old Testament. They had summarized them in 600 and, uh, in, into 613 commandments, and they had ranked them all as which is more, most significant and weighty. And so when he asked him this, Jesus summarized and says, Love God, love your neighbor. The goal today is to understand what does that mean? How do we love God and love our neighbor? And so our points are simple, loving God, loving our neighbor, and then we're going to look at the power to love, the power to love. <coughs> Let's look at loving God first. Jesus' answer was not profound. He simply quoted a very familiar passage in Deuteronomy 6. They called it the Shema. Uh, every Jew listening to this conversation would probably have already prayed this prayer um, and quoted these words in their morning devotions. It was a very familiar passage of Scripture. But it's interesting in verse 29, when he asks what is the most important command, that he begins, as Deuteronomy does, with a statement. Did you catch it? It's not a command. He says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. To understand this, you've got to think of the context that was given to, even back in Deuteronomy. The Israelites had come out of Egypt. The Egyptians were um, polytheistic. They, they worshipped many gods. They were careful to give honor to all of them. And it was the same in Jesus' day, in the Roman culture, right? They had many gods, and they prayed and trusted to these gods um, for what they needed. So if you were going to war, for example, you'd pray to Zeus to bless you as you went to war. If you're going on a voyage, you'd pray to Neptune, the god of the sea. If you remember in Acts 17, in fact, there's so many gods that as Paul walked around the city of Athens, that it says that he noticed they had a statue to the unknown god, just in case they'd missed one. They wanted to make sure they honored all of the gods. The result was this, that you could be very religious and pray to this God here and there. But no God got your whole heart. And Jesus then was saying, if you want to know what it looks like to love God, 
in this culture. He said, there, you have to realize this above all truths. There's only one supreme being in the universe, not one among many. God alone, Yahweh, is the foundation of all life and truth, morality, the source of all things beautiful and lovely, the beginning and end and sustainer of all things. In other words, there's only one rightful object of your worship. Only Yahweh is worthy of your whole allegiance and affection. And if you get this, as John Calvin said, all other gods, so-called gods, take their rightful place as being no gods at all. Now, we don't live in a culture of many gods where we, we ask of them many things. I mean, very few of us, I'm, I'm sure none of us, uh, when going on a voyage, pray to uh, you know, a highway idol. Or if you're going to the pool, an idol of the pool or something for safety. Um, but if you think about it, an idol can be much more than a god with a, a literal statue or a name. See, a, an idol can be anything in our lives that we've given our hearts to. We form idols in our heart when we take some good thing God's creation or in our lives, and we turn it into an ultimate thing. We become convinced that if we don't have this person or thing, that life would lose its meaning. We couldn't be happy. And then this person or thing or object in our lives, it then possesses some of our heart. And because of the fall of man, everyone here is an idolater. We all have a a divided heart. We all in some way entrust ourselves, part of our hearts, to some of these so-called gods. Can you see then why Jesus began with this statement before he gets to the command to love God with all of your heart? The oneness of God. You see how it relates to the commandment to love God with your whole heart. In a past church that I served, there was a, a man I was working with and uh, he had fallen into some grievous sin and Part of that was um, he uh, left his wife and started living with another woman. And, and um, after a while, he, he wanted to come back to his wife. And so he called her and, and told her, I want to remain married to you. And I want to um, come back and live with you. I, I just want to ask you, though, would it be okay if I, if I still see this other woman sometimes? I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? We could not imagine somebody doing something like that. Marital love is one love. It's not to be shared. A spouse has rights to your whole heart. She has a right to be jealous if if she thinks or you think she or he is giving it to someone else. There's no room for a third party. And therefore, we should understand that there are many things that we could say about how to love God, but what Jesus is saying is, is there's only one object deserving of your whole heart, and he is jealous for all of it. He, he doesn't want to share it. He wants your love for him to be ultimate above all loves for other people and other things in your life. Giving it to, giving your heart wholly to another is adulterous. So practically, some practical application. This means in order to really love God, we have to start examining our other loves. And to, we are called to love other people and other things with a type of lesser 
love. And this is paradoxical. Being that Jesus is fixing to go into saying, look, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. But I think C.S. Lewis captures it right when he says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. He goes on and says, when first things are put first, second things are actually not suppressed, but they're increased. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that if you make another person an object of your of your ultimate affection and love, you're actually going to love them less. You're, you're going to actually kill the relationship. Why? Because they're not God. They're never meant to be. They're never meant to be treated as depended on and, and hoped in and trusted in. And the more you look to them, the more you depend on or, depend on or hope in a friend, a spouse, a child... To be your earthly dearest, the more you will live with anxiety and disappointment and anger at them for not fulfilling that. The same with any other object in our lives. But, Jesus is saying, if you will start here, the oneness of God, and you will give yourself wholeheartedly first to God, and he strives towards loving him first, then your experience of love for others will not be suppressed but will actually be increased. Because they won't feel like that they have to be your God. They will feel more loved. And so we can see how uh, loving God and loving our neighbors relate. So we're going to go on to point two. What does it mean to love our neighbor? And I'll say there's so much more to, to, to talk about in loving God. There's so much more included to talk about delighting in him and obeying his commandments and what that means and how it relates to loving God. But Matt gives me one sermon, so we're squeezing it all in. (laughs) Let's move on to loving our neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It's interesting the scribe asks for the greatest commandment, singular. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is, and then he responds with two things, love God and love your neighbor. So just as we spoke about, um, the conclusion we can draw is that they go together. Love for God necessarily overflows, almost as if it's one commandment, into love for your neighbor. You can't have one without the other. Any more than you can have a judge that doesn't care for justice, or a policeman that doesn't have morality, or vanilla ice cream that doesn't have any kind of toppings on it, right? Syrup or anything like that. That's for Matt. (laughs) I just don't get vanilla ice cream without anything else. You know, they go together. The rest of the New Testament understands this connection, though. It's interesting that Paul sometimes, he says the whole, like in Romans 13, all the commandments are summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Really, Paul? All the commandments? Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8, the way to fulfill the royal, kingly, the sovereign law is, guess, do really nice things for your pastor especially the assistant. (laughs) No. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. All commands have this goal. And I'm not sure that we automatically think this way, that we have this. Let me just give you two quick examples. Think of sexual morality. 
of uh, the way we sometimes talk about not looking at inappropriate images on the internet as if they are some kind of abstract object, forbidden object. What, if, what would happen if we in the church started presenting them, as we, we said, as an issue of loving, loving your neighbor? And we said, why don't we strive to see that girls as human beings created in God's image? Somebody's daughter, wife, that will spend, that has a soul and will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. What if we started seeing people like that and then go love them? Even if you don't know them. That, per, that, that image is a person. Go love her and care for her. What about gambling? Okay, I'm trying to take something, on the, something out there. What about gambling? You know, we say, Bible says don't gamble. What if we talk about it in terms of loving your neighbor? Think about it for a second. Ponder how for you to win, somebody else has to lose. That's how it works. And I worked at a homeless shelter for a while and and realized that it's usually the poor that loses. And so to gamble and hope that you win, it's in some way connected to a a reality that somebody else is going to lose. And we're not loving the poor very well. It's just like water that goes through a water filter. All of our actions should be filtered through this desire to do good to our neighbor and not to harm them. It brings us to this famous quote, though. Hopefully we're asking, well, who is our neighbor? It's a very relevant question because this scribe, see, he, he, in that culture, he limited his neighbor to the Israelites and other Jews, just other brothers. They would not have included the Romans and the Gentile pagans. We know this because of verses like Matthew 5:43. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where'd they get that? Well, the scribes and Pharisees, they created that. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <clears throat> love your immediate family and your church family. And then they lived with a justified bitterness toward Romans who oppressed them. They avoided them and the Samaritans at all costs. So it's not too far off, though, in our culture today, right? Love is a very popular ethic in our culture. Dot, dot, dot. Unless. Unless they don't believe the same thing you believe unless they don't agree with you then there's almost a justified animosity and antagonism towards them go at them they don't believe what you believe and as much as we promote love in our culture everyone everyone tends to 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 separate themselves into groups that are like each other with similar backgrounds and likes and dislikes and interests social status economic classes belief system but in the church, who is our neighbor that we are called to love? This commandment applies to. Who's God calling us to love? The Greek word neighbor is actually not, it, what it literally means is the one near you. That's what it means. Made up of an adjective. Any person close to you. So what Jesus is saying is basically, um, who is your neighbor? Well, then do this, like the girl earlier in the, in the, ser- in the children's sermon. Stick out your arms. Uh, Who do you touch? Who do you run into? Who do you live around and work with and see at the grocery store and at the park? That is your neighbor. We quickly see it. We can't limit our neighbor just to other Christians. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 46. He says, if you love and greet only those who love and greet you, what more are you doing than non-Christians? When an expert in the law in Luke 10 asked Jesus about this, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's the neighbor? Anyone who's in need that is around you as you go. Even if he is one who disagrees with you, believes something different, or even an enemy. Someone told me this week of uh, uh, Marilyn Manson was coming to the city to play a concert in a city up north. And he said, if you know anything about Marilyn Manson, he's not the most, uh, doesn't promote Christianity. <laughs> Say it that way. Um, so many of the churches, local churches, began protesting and coming out against the concert. One church decided to do something different. They instead uh, bought a, a, a boatload of hot chocolate. And they went, and as people stood out in the cold before going into this concert, they just went around with hot chocolate and served everybody. Everybody before they went in. These Christians didn't see uh, the unchurched as a threat to their holiness but as an opportunity to love those who were near them, had come near to them. So if we think for a moment of our neighbors in terms of those close to us, um, surely, and, most, and biblically, we, let's, let's think of some examples. Let's start with our family. Okay? You go home, you reach out your arms, you first touch your spouse and your children, or your best friends. So your spouse, <clears throat> think about your spouse. Some may be even thinking, um, look, you've already covered them, the ones that disagree with you, right? So we've already addressed that. Um, Jesus said, you know, love those who persecute you. <laughs> Just kidding. Do you think of your spouse as a neighbor that you're called to love? We're called even to love our enemies. And surely we have this as a first priority to, to pursue, to love our spouses with great effort. As hard and complicated as that is in so many cases, even here. And so we're going to talk about the power to love here in a moment. But surely Jesus meant our spouse is our neighbor. What about our children? Ever think of your children as little human neighbors running around? <laughs> You're called to love. If you limit your parenting to just Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, then we're missing out. This could open up some windows. And one blogger said this about this realization. She said, Recognizing my children as neighbors has impacted the way I discipline them, the way I speak to them, the way I speak about them to others. It's required to me to acknowledge how quick I am to treat those closest to me in ways I would never treat a friend or co-worker. It's helped me to make my children objects of my compassion instead of my contempt. I'm better able to celebrate their successes without taking credit for them and to grieve their failures without seeing them as glaring evidence that I'm a terrible parent. Recognizing my children as my neighbors has freed me to enjoy them as people rather than to resent them as laundry-generating, food-ingesting, mess-making, fit-throwing financial obligations. And then she says, except for the days that it hasn't. I love that. And on those days, I must be reminded again that what Scripture teaches about loving my neighbor I confess I haven't loved my child in the way I should, and I begin again. I love that. Singles, how could this law of love help you relate with the opposite sex? Or your friends? 
How could it affect the way you listen to them and care for them instead of thinking so much about ourselves and hoping that what we say would just go into them liking us? Our church, so many come into church needing to be loved. There ever should be a place outside of the family that we reach our hands out and say, I am called to come in to worship and to love the person next to me in the pew, to get to know them and love them well. And then we have our other neighbors, the ones we actually live by, work with, see at the park and at the supermarket, the unchurched around us. And how easy is it, Christians, that as we leave the house, we walk out into our neighborhood and we retract our little neighbor meter. (laughs) We keep it in until we get to our Christian bubble and then we And then we extend it again. So easy as a Christian to have only relationships of true love with people who are other Christians. And I'm hoping today that you will leave with a conviction, if nothing else, that we cannot ignore those within we come, we have close proximity, our unchurched neighbors that we live with, work with, and play with. We're called to love them. If you'll look at the seat in front of you, there's going to be, there's a little card. I'm going to ask that you grab this card. You don't have to use it. This is not in Scripture that you have to use this card. (laughs) This is a little card, though, that if you struggle to love your neighbor well, and you don't have anything like this, because I realize I'm talking to a group with a spectrum. You know, on one end, uh, some of you have 10 relationships with unbelievers, and you probably need to scale back (laughs) to really love people well. But some of you, this is terrifying. To actually walk in, walk outside, and you know Tom's name that, that mows the grass, but you, you don't really know him, and therefore you don't really love him. I encourage you to use this. Take this home. Write one, two, three of these names down of these people you know. And on the back, it just says three things. Seek to really know them. Develop a real relationship. Pray for them regularly and their specific needs, and then find ways to just tangibly meet those needs and serve them. For some of you, again, it might begin with just, and it really should, prayer. God, I'm terrified. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know where to begin. Well, then start with prayer. God, give me the words. Help me know how to love them. Because I guarantee your neighbor that looks like he has everything together, they do not have everything together, and they're desperate to be loved as well, just like you. Use this tool. Let's go on, though, then with the power to love. A power to love. Uh, Corey Tim Boom tells a story in one of her books about <coughs> meeting a man when, uh, when in Africa, in a meeting in Africa, and he came in and his hands were all bandaged up. And uh, she asked him, she inquired, how did this happen? And he had said that his neighbor's roof caught on fire and that he actually he burned his hands up trying to put the fire out. She then writes this in the book. She said, Later I heard the whole story. The neighbor hated him and set his roof on fire while his wife and children were asleep in the hut. They were in great danger, but fortunately he was able to put out the fire in his house on time. But sparks flew over to the roof of the man who set his house on fire and his house started to burn. There was no hate in the heart of this Christian. There was love for his enemy 
And he did everything he could to put out the fire in his neighbor's house. And that is how his hands were burned. Where does that kind of power come from? Where does that kind of motivation to love our spouses, our children, even to our enemies like that? I was at a homeless summit on Monday, and there's a, a local ma, uh, imam of a mosque that's actually on the radio. With this question on my mind, I asked him, so what's the motivation in Islam to love God and love your neighbor? And he's, to sum it up, he simply said, well, in order to be a good Muslim, you must love God and love your neighbor. In order to be a good Muslim. To hear, and this, this is, it was not a, um, I was not trying to trick him or be manipulative. He seemed like a very humble, good man, actually. But here's the, the fundamental difference in all of religion and Christianity. And if you don't get this, you will not have the power to love people like this. The fundamental difference in Christianity. Religion says love God and love your neighbor so that you will be accepted and loved. Love so you will be loved and not rejected. Christianity says the opposite. Your love for God and your love for your neighbor, it comes second. We love, why? Because he first loved you. We love because he first loved and he did not reject you. I have a, a good friend that is a Muslim as well and we meet regularly to talk about things of the faith and he's very knowledgeable of his faith and he just cannot get this point. He, he, he says rules are needed. This was this week he told me. He said rules are needed to keep people from doing what's right. Rules keep the heart controlled. They, they keep it in check just like stoplights and police. We need rules in order to motivate us. He's one of the most loving guys I know. So, and he had a great point. Rules are motivating, especially in religion. And all of a sudden, I thought about it. I said, you know what? If your wife, a really good friend of yours, they come to you and, and they, they just, <coughs> they, they, they do some act of sacrificial love for you. It's just sacrificial and out of the blue. And it's just, you just, feel completely loved by it. You do not need a rule that says reach out and take their hand. You do not need a rule, a law that says give them a hug, say something nice to them. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Therefore, we are motivated to love. Christ's love controls us. Unless we get this, unless you get the whole picture of what's going on here in Mark, where it ends, the death of Christ, then you will leave here either puffed up, full of pride, saying, I have done such a great job loving God and loving my neighbor. And your love for others will be all about yourself and earning your way into heaven, pleasing God. Or you will leave completely defeated, realizing that if you really take this command seriously, you have failed miserably with your divided heart. There's an incredible story of irony 
as a scribe brought up something the Jews had been doing for 1,500 years. He says, this is better than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In verse 33. See, for 1,500 years, they've been bringing a sacrifice, a burnt offering into the temple to be assured that God was for them and he loves them. And he took this innocent animal into the temple to meet with God and they would lay their hands on this substitute and then they would slaughter it to be assured that my sins were transferred to this sacrifice and that God has removed the barrier of my sins so that I can be loved. I can leave the temple in God's presence knowing that I'm, he loves me. Christianity begins with one confessing that you have not loved the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. But while you were yet an enemy of God's, distant, not in close proximity, far off, unholy, God wholeheartedly came against our spiritual adultery that he placed on Jesus at the cross and Jesus was slaughtered. He became our substitute. And listen, it's as simple as this. If you will place your hands upon Jesus, if you'll place your hands by faith, believing that God loves you, he has dealt with all of your sin, you are clean before him, and because of the work of Jesus, that he rose again, you are first loved, period. It does not matter what you did this week or last week or later in your life. You just can't get over. You are loved, dearly loved and precious to God. And if you get this, your heart changes and two things will happen. One, are all those other so-called ultimate loves, those gods, they begin to more and more take their rightful places, no gods at all. And then the result will be that you will actually be able to enjoy and love them better. Your wife, your child, your neighbor, and by the grace of God, even our enemy. Let's pray. God, if we would take this command seriously, all of us would thrust ourselves upon a Savior. And we thank you for having a great Savior and the work of Jesus dying for us all. And therefore, we pray that we would leave here with a certain death inside, a death to all those other ultimate things, that we might be empowered by your grace to move out into the lives of others, starting with our, our families and our extended family into the holidays and and our literal neighbors that we see day in and day out and even our enemies. God, do this for your grace, by your grace and for your glory that we may be a church that's known for our love for you and our love for our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.